Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. 1984's Chud or Communistic Humanoid Underground Discourse. <laughs> Hello, Hello John. everybody. Hello. Hello. Hey, Ash. Hey. Hey, everyone. And welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. I am your co-ghost, uh, John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined as ever by uh, my friend, comrade, and fellow ghost of the show, Ash. Ash, how you doing? I can't can't complain. I've got I've got coffee in my hand, and we're about to talk about one of one of the most touching films I think we've ever done. I, honestly, I think this is, it's a tearjerker. It's a real tearjerker. Yes. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the immortal words of Odorous Arungus from uh, Guar, when does the touching start? <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful story about uh, life in the, in the decaying urban jungle. It's, it's a, a damning indictment of uh, the institutions of contemporary capitalism. Uh, and it's... Um, also about um, cannibalistic mutants from underground that are coming to eat you and your pet dog. Uh, today we are talking about 1984's Chud, <laughs> which has been weirdly hugely requested as well since we started doing this show. This is so. So I, I keep like a soft track of like episodes people want us to cover or films people want us to cover and things like that. Yeah. Uh, Chud is the second highest ranking on the When Are You Going to Do This movie. Uh, yeah, only only beaten by They Live, which is the most single requested film. Yeah, yeah. So it is it is time we are starting twenty twenty with a bang, talking about Chud. Um, but before we jump into this film, as always, you'll know what comes next. Ash, for those unfortunate people who have yet to experience <laughs> this cinematic masterpiece, what is Chud? actually about i mean you you just said that people have come to expect this but i don't think you're going to expect this <laughs> <clears throat> uh, yes chud uh, but before before we i i describe chud i just want to say that uh chud to bud the chud is an absolute classic and we will be following this up with the sequel at some point absolutely just bud the chud can you just not say that and smile just everyone at home right now pause the podcast and say bud the chud and see if you smile or not chud. see if it bud brings a little light chud. to your life it, re it really does <laughs> anyway chud or communistic humanoid underground dwellers falls into a subcategory <laughs> of films that i like to call forbidden rom-coms much like raccoons and possums are forbidden cats chud is only a rom-com <laughs> if you're brave enough Lauren Daniels is a model trying to make it in the big city, but her already rocky romance with photographer George Cooper is thrown out of whack when irradiated mutant humanoids burst forth from the city's sewer system and begin devouring human flesh. Will Lauren and George be able to make the corporation responsible pay, or will they miss their only shot at love? As we are warmed by each other's presence, let us turn to this film and, perhaps, just perhaps... We can learn that the true cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller was love all along. That that's just beautiful. That's just beautiful. Maybe we should have done this for the month of love for next month. But uh, I'm I'm so glad we've decided to start the year by doing this. It's like poetry. Let's, 
let's talk about let's talk about Chud, which has got just the best title. Um, and Bud the Chud does make me feel so happy inside. Uh, <laughs> where do you want to start with this? Um, so I I would like to start right off right off the bat with uh, the couple that kind of forms. Uh, the center most of those there's four characters that are pretty much our primary uh, protagonists but uh, George and Lauren are a couple Lauren is a model uh, trying to make it in New York City in like the fashion modeling scene mm-hmm. and George is a formerly famous formerly very successful we're led to believe uh, fashion photographer and art photographer uh, mm-hmm. but he's left he's left that world behind and now he focuses on kind of documenting some of New York City's uh, most uh, worse-off homeless population, and I would like to open by by talking about their really weird relationship. Yeah, it's um, I I I don't really get it. I, they don't seem to like each other, <laughs> right? And I, I think it's because like you know, there's there's a romance subplot in the background of the movie about irradiated humanoid cannibals. So, I yeah. mean, we know what everybody came here for. It's the love story that's being clogged up by these irradiated humanoid cannibals. Yeah, it would be, I, I don't know, maybe maybe like the director really wanted to do like a kind of Nancy Myers style rom-com, but the only script they had to work <laughs> with was one where there are like sewer mutants uh, that are coming to eat people. Right. We, we, don't have enough bu- we don't have enough budget for these props. What do we have? What do we have in the prop closet? Uh, a bunch of cannibal mutants? <laughs> Throw them in the rom-com. We'll make it work. Uh, you know, you can just like imagine the poster was going to be like uh, George and Lauren standing back to back and she's got like the wearied expression on her face of like, oh, this guy. But in the background, there's a massive sewer monster. <laughs> um yeah so they don't they don't really seem to seem to like each other all that much and george there's a there's a like in the very opening there's this scene where he's on the phone with the journalist that he's been writing this kind of story with um and he has not provided the journalist with the photos to go with the copy uh, which is like wildly irresponsible and then uh lauren just tells him that they've been booked to do um a perfume commercial mm-hmm which he clearly thinks is wildly beneath him. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and he's, like, just constantly shit-talking the product all throughout the shoot. And Lauren, like, quite obviously is going, can you not say that in front of these people? You're going to get me fired? But he is, but you see, you see, he is an artiste. Yeah, I was going to say, he's, he's an artiste. He is a man of deeper thought and passion. He is also so, a, a total jackass. He's also just a total asshole, um, who does, doesn't doesn't care at all that um, the the person that he's with is maybe going to lose work because of his inability to just just shut up. the fuck up and take the goddamn pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I think just like turn the, up, clock in, do the job, and then leave. <laughs> like the thing, the thing for me that really was like ugh, kind of like annoying a little bit about that opening scene is like by the rest of the text of the movie clearly these are meant they're, they're meant to be a couple that are very much in love and happy together and it's not that their relationship's strained at all but that whole opening sequence is just uh, uh george treating her like absolute garbage for doing like i hesitate to call the perfume ad even mildly erotic you know like like <laughs> yeah. lauren has to pose ten it's it's tangential to a seductive pose Right, it's like anything you would see on a perfume ad anywhere in the United States. Yeah, you know, it since is, it is, 1970. Right, right. Since since uh, uh, the 70s at least. Right, and it's it's 
nothing nothing shocking nothing risque revealing nothing like pushing boundaries and he's just absolutely tearing her apart in front of her uh employers about this and it's just the most like 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 for me it's like why are we why are we starting with this in this film with this like uh, abuse because it never comes back in the plot it never becomes a thing ever again like yeah. i was kind of expecting later on that they would resolve that because there's there's clearly some trust issues there right you know he's well, well, he's got that patriarchal mi- patriarchal mindset right he can't trust her to have autonomy and agency and i was expecting that but like okay there's gonna be a scene later where he has to like like lauren you have to take the key that saves us from you have to take this MacGuffin to save us from the chuds i have to trust you now but no it never well, really happens I don't, I don't know i don't know if it was even that i just I I just never buy the fact that he likes her. <laughs> like there's like there's like he's always like just so distant, and I don't think it's a lack of trust. I'm like I just don't. He has literally no chemistry with her at all, and I'm like I don't I don't buy the fact that the, these two are supposed to be in a relationship because at one point uh, she even tells him that she's pregnant. Oh yeah, uh, and his response is like, so. Uh, what are you going to do? Right. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, uh, it'll be fine. Uh, you know, your choice, whatever you want to do. And he's like all but dialing planned parenthood in the background for her. <laughs> like, yeah, I felt, I I felt that those, those, those two scenes exist in a really weird tension with each other, right? Because we have we have that first scene where he's clearly uncomfortable with with her taking these these pictures, right? Because he doesn't want her to have that kind of autonomy. And then you've got the follow-up scene where where she she announces her pregnancy, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, you know your body, your choice. Whatever you decide, I'm right on board." And it's just like there's just such massive dissonance between those two things. But I think if it's instructive of anything, it's instructive of the fact that like unlearning the patriarchy and kind of moving into more like feminist allyship spaces is never. It's not. It's not like a linear scale. You know, there can be mm-hmm. massive missing gulfs inside of like self-critique when people try to do that. And if if we take away anything positive from the weird relationship opener we get with this film, I think it would be that. Yeah, I mean, I think he's just he's clearly more wrapped up in his great work. Oh, yeah, he's than, very much and, more interested in being an artist than he is in being kind of like any any manner of supportive partner. Yeah, exactly. Because like for the rest of the film, they barely see each other. Right. Until she shows up at the end of the movie to save the day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And we get the kind of reunited moment and uh, we're supposed to go, oh, they really care about each other. But like every part of me was just was just sort of like internally screaming, just dump him. Just dump. Leave, leave the trash in the sewer where it belongs. (laughs) amazing <laughs> uh he again ample evidence for my overall thesis which developed all the way back in our last halloween episode that men are bad men are just bad <laughs> if if horror films teaches anything <laughs> it's that that as as you know generally as a rule of thumb uh men are bad <laughs> uh, yeah i think a uh, horror film is definitely instructive in the uh, uh inherent evils and limitations of patriarchal power 
and, <laughs> and, 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 and toxic masculinity. Ash putting it there. Uh, a lot more, literally, a lot more sophi- in the case of this film, toxic masculinity. <laughs> <laughs> Ash putting it in a lot more kind of sophisticated language than I, than I am. <laughs> um, but yes, so George is wrapped up in his great work making this kind of visual essay, I suppose, this narrative essay, this photographic essay about the homeless in New York. Um, uh, and at the same time, we we get introduced to um, the police who realise that a large number of disappearances have been happening in this particular part of the city. Yes, I was going to say this. That's a it's a good transition from our new podcast series, the Rom Com Vanguard. Absolutely. <laughs> or Rom Communism. I still think I still rom-communism. think if anybody out there starts Rom Communism, you will be my favorite person. <laughs> And we get introduced to um, Captain Bosch. Uh, Captain Bosch, yeah. Captain Bosch. Our, our, I think like this might be one of the first uh, uh, law enforcement officers in a horror movie that ever actually gets things done and and fights on the side of good. I mean, we have established, I think, pretty much since the first Black Christmas episode, uh, that in horror films the rules are. Uh, not only ACAB, just you know, just saying. We've all seen Maniac all, Cop, yeah. But all cops are useless as well. All cops are useless. If you're, if you're in a horror movie and you end up going to the cops, a few things are going to happen. They're not going to believe you. They're going to be hugely chauvinistic and dismissive towards you, and they're going to be like completely useless to actually, you know, serve and protect. That's that's just what's going to happen. Right, and well, and that speaks that speaks to like a dual horror, right? Because you have. You have the segment of the population that's going to watch the horror movie, knowing that if they called the police for similar issues, they would li- they would uh, uh, equally be ignored, just like the characters they're watching. And then you have the segment of the population who still believe that, like, you know, the the protect and to serve motto means anything, and and it's scary to them because here it's not happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but this movie is different. <laughs> I. W- I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna back down on uh, on ACAB. Oh, of course not. But we found one cop who is not completely useless in a horror movie. And we were we were talking about uh, Captain Bosch, Captain uh, Bosch von Ronsenberg of Delmasca. For all of you uh, Final <laughs> Fantasy heads out there, I'm just gonna throw that one out there. One of the best memes of the 2010s. Um, yeah, but I think uh, so. We were talking about this beforehand, and Captain Bosch, through the course of the movie, is trying to unravel why people are disappearing. And we come to find out that's because he has a little bit of a personal grudge here because his wife is one of the people who've disappeared. In the amazing opening sequence, we see uh, his wife walking down the street with the dog, taking the dog for a late night walk. Uh, she walks past the manhole cover, and something emerges to drag both her and the dog down into the sewers. And that's something we will go on to find out is corporate greed. <laughs> and that something is a lack of environmental regulation and corporate greed. <laughs> yes, but uh, uh, for, for these reasons, Captain Bosch uh, starts, starts investigating these disappearances. He starts working with uh, a man he has a reputation with who runs a local homeless shelter. Uh, and he winds up, and, and I think this, this is kind of the thing that makes Captain Bosch different, right? Is that initially after kind of, the resolution of the second act is uh, Captain Bosch presenting evidence to the city that toxic waste has been dumped in the sewers. 
and that there are mutants down there and that they need to do something quick in order to save everybody's lives. Yeah. And then the, the, the people from the city who are, are openly and clearly in the pocket of uh, – the the company abusing the lack of environmental regulation here are just like oh okay yeah that's nice you can get the fuck out of the office now yeah literally nobody cares <laughs> right and, and uh, th- th- this is kind of uh I, I guess the discursive split i'd break because this is kind of where captain bosch stops being a cop in in kind of like the functional sense of the word right he's not uh he's no longer defending corporate property he's now trying to stop corporations from yeah, doing what they want where- I mean, to put this more bluntly, this is where he becomes a class traitor. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yes. What is, it, what is it to be a police officer, especially a senior one, is to be a protector of capital and its vested interests at the expense of everything else. Yes. Uh, and that only that only really functions if, uh, apparently, if the police think that what they're protecting is worth protecting in the first place. Um and then at this point in the film, he he discovers that, oh, yeah, they know they don't give a shit uh, what you've been protecting is like the, the the kind of hideous injustice being wreaked upon the very poorest in the entire city. And he decides to, um, yeah, to, to, to be a class trainer, to turn his back on it and to try and take the whole thing down. So it occurs to me that uh, the phrase class trader might be new to some of our listeners and and it's kind of it's kind of a big term with some like scary words in there. So if you wouldn't uh, mind yeah. giving a quick primer for what oh, yeah. Sorry. what is, is a class trader, and if you if you would do me the personal favor of of explaining that from both the perspective of the the proletariat to the working people, and from the perspective of like people who are class traders amongst the ruling class. Yeah, uh, I I realized that was quite a spicy take (laughs) just to casually throw that one around. Okay, so uh, material interests determine social relations, right? That's that's a pretty straightforward point. If you benefit from a system, you are going to be likely to defend its interests and keep that going. So uh, Captain Bosch, especially, he's married, he's got a nice house, he's doing quite well for himself in New York. He has benefited from a system which has uh, driven perhaps hundreds or thousands of people into the sewers of the city and has dumped toxic waste upon them. Um, he has uh, been a police officer who defends the interests and and the property and the capital and the freedom of that system. Um, so to, to be a class traitor in his position is actually to uh, repudiate all of those previously uh, those previous benefits which have come at the cost of other people and to stand with the oppressed and to stand with the poor and the people who have been dispossessed and literally thrown under the city. Um, that's In that case, that's that's a pretty good thing to, to do. And I think it's one of the reasons why we say that he's the one not useless cop in a horror movie that we've watched so far. Um, from the other point of view, you know, if you have a sense of uh, if you are one of those poor, if you are one of those working class, if your interests do not align with the people who are your boss, um, it makes no sense. It is it is turning your back on your your fellow working class people to decide to side with your bosses, to, to decide with the capitalist class. Uh, a really easy example of that is people who break uh, and picket lines. So if you are part of a part of a workplace that has decided to go on strike by crossing a picket line without an incredibly good reason and in fact i would struggle to think what an incredibly good reason would be you are basically saying that you are giving up on the solidarity that you share with other working people 
uh, you're saying that you want to align your own material interests, that sweet, sweet money uh, with those of the people who have driven your, your friends, colleagues and comrades onto a picket line. So from a certain point of view, being a class trader is not a good thing. Don't cross a picket line. Yes. Not a good thing to do. <laughs> uh, don't ever cross a picket line. Um, but from a, from another point of view, actually, to have someone from a from from that position, the you know, cops always protect capital. To have a police officer turn their back on that and actually, you know, stand up for the 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 poor and the exploited and the 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 most vulnerable. That's the kind of of class treachery, which is which is a good thing. How is that as an explanation? I, I think you absolutely nailed it. And hopefully, um, you know, as always, um, if you have any, have any questions about any of the weird theory stuff we talk about, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or the Discord, and we will be more than happy uh, to waste your time with weird metaphors to explain it all. Yeah, exactly. So he is a good cop precisely at the point where he stops doing the things that make somebody a good cop in the eyes of society when he gives up defending and like obeying his superiors and like going oh well they know better than me and i'm just doing my job because that what that's what makes someone a good cop to a kind of capitalist society but when he stops doing that that's when he actually becomes a a, a, a person who's actually doing some good in the world yeah yeah i think i think that you're absolutely right the, the thing that makes this captain bosch a really good character is that he stops fighting against the people and the environment and the homeless population of New York and starts fighting for them for a change. And yeah, I think, um, yeah, part, part of that is, um, yeah. So Captain Bosch and, um, AJ, the Reverend Shepard, who's played by Daniel Stern of the home alone franchise fame. You'll know him as one of the wet bandits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the whole second act is about them, uh, building up evidence that the sewers are polluted and that bad things are happening. And you kind of see that something that we've been talking a lot about lately is kind of the limitations of kind of resistance if you follow the rules of the system, right? You can put together petitions and you could do the protests that are kind of nothing more than a march down the road. But at the end of the day, those are functionally limited in what they're able to accomplish. You know, they're yeah. not they're not bad as tactics in and of themselves necessarily, but they functionally cannot do certain things, right? And we see this in the film. You know, they they find ir irrefusable evidence that the sewers are polluted by toxic nuclear waste and that's causing horrible things to happen to the homeless people. And that's why people are disappearing. And then the people from the city are just like, yeah, well, no, goodbye, because yeah, they're, they're under do anything about no it. We know obligation that, we know to listen. Happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, it's like it wasn't that this was an accident. This was a deliberate strategy, Um, you know, and like. Uh, at the time, I don't know, maybe at the time it, it felt like a, a stretch, but really Chud is basically a documentary. Yeah. Like th this kind of, this kind of shit happens all the time. Uh, it doesn't usually, doesn't usually happen in uh, American or European cities, but it certainly does happen in certain sections of, of American cities. Um, you know, uh, Power companies or waste disposal companies will often hire consultants to talk about, oh, where should our toxic waste processing site go? And a lot of the time, it will go in the poorest communities because it's the poorest who have the least recourse to official channels to protest and to, to advocate for their own interests. So even if they did follow all of the rules, the, the homeless in New York in this film would probably still get dumped on because they're the easiest group to ignore.
Absolutely. And like in terms of the material realities of what's going on inside Chud, barring, of course, the mutant cannibal humanoids. <laughs> although, <laughs> although for the record, I have never not seen a picture of zero mutant, mutant uh, cannibalistic humanoids, so I can't confirm they don't exist. Mm-hmm. But like the material conditions, like this is exactly what's happening in Flint, Michigan, right? The, the water there is poison. And and because the city is not obliged to do anything and the government is not obliged to do anything, they just don't do anything, even though there's irreputable evidence at this point that, that the water that people are supposed to drink is just literally toxic. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I say, this 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 happens. All the time, you know, this is something this is something that is uh, actually probably only going to accelerate right as we start seeing. Um, as the, the kind of impacts of man-made climate, ch- climate change get so much more difficult to ignore, yeah. like uh, we're going to start seeing this kind of thing all the time. This this environmental racism, this this mm-hmm. um, environmental classism, which will always, you know, sacrifice the the, the poorest and marginalised communities in order to safeguard the interests of itself. Yeah, 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 and like. Just, just oh, to, oh, go on. So, sorry, here's a, here's a <laughs> uh, didn't mean to interrupt, but here's a, here's a quick quote from a, from an article. Um, in 1985, the city government announced it would locate a trash incinerator in South Central LA a year after California Waste Management paid half a million taxpayer dollars to the consultancy firm Corel Associates for advice on locating such controversial toxic facilities. The Corel report is a how-to, a checklist outlining the qualities of the least resistant personality profile target the less educated it advises the elderly middle and higher socioeconomic strata neighborhoods it said should not fall at least within one mile and five mile radii of the proposed site target the poor yes basically absolutely and then that's that's also that's also a great example of what environmental racism is right it's not that the environment is racist which is kind of the hackneyed response that you see from the right it's yep. uh, environmental policy, the degradation of the environment, environmental catastrophe. Uh, inherently, by the way, society is rigged as a racist system targets uh, people of color, targets the poor, targets women. Yeah. God yeah, damn it. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and that, sorry, that I was quoting there from uh, uh, China Mavel's article, The Limits of Utopia, which I will put in the show notes. Yes. Because yeah, so like this is not this is not beyond, like this is barely an imaginative leap, Chud. In many ways, I mean, it's it's, I it's not. Right. I mean, just look at Australia. Australia is literally burning down right now, and the Australian government just re-upped yesterday their belief that anthropogenic climate change does not exist. Yeah, and their country, you know, there are like literally children hiding on beaches as we speak because their country's on fire. Yeah, so like this idea that. Uh, you know, he uncovers this this per- Captain Bosch who has been working for this system is actually brought to a moment of kind of like epiphany and realizes that the system that he's been, you know, has made a career out of defending um, is like hopelessly corrupt and not only not only is not going to change its mind but already knew about these terrible things. Absolutely. Returning, returning to my classic catchphrase of absolutely instead of the new catchphrase, I wouldn't agree with that. <laughs> yeah. But this brings up brings up a really important point that I wanted to kind of touch on, which is like the, what he does quite – I tweeted about this a couple of days ago. Like 
people in this film love to threaten to go to the press. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go, we, we're going to go to the press. We're going to go to the press. And I'm like, I watching this film, I watched it for the first time this week, and I, I'm watching it, I was like, that would never work now because you'd go to the press and people would just be like, well, we, you know, so... Like the, all of these conspiracy theories, but they're like, no, word can't get out. Word gets out about them all the time. And people just go, oh, this is a really interesting story. Uh, as somebody on Twitter pointed out, basically, sorry to bother you is the best filmic explanation of this entire process. So it's like, I, I find it kind of weirdly nostalgic that you could look, watch a horror movie where characters would go, we're going to expose you in the press and it would work. <laughs> I mean, I, I love the idea. <laughs> I, I think I think the thing about that for me that really works in terms of like Chud Chud has aged, I would say, really well for for like low budget. Like let's had a budget of like one and a half million dollars. Yeah, you know, for like low budget eighties horror, Chud aged beautifully. And I think one of the reasons yeah, why it did for me is that like everybody wants to go to the press, and it's all about journalists, and those are kind of dead jobs now. Like yeah. way more so now in in the year of our Chud twenty twenty, like the the ability to go to to a journalist as an institutional body in order to try and expose the ills of society is infinitely more difficult than it was in the 80s because those jobs have been stripped away those outlets have been melted down and now like all of the big outlets are like cnn and msnbc are right-leaning media outlets all, all they do is corporate media and then fox is just an openly white supremacist one and those are the three big ones in the u.s and this yeah, doesn't even absolutely. this doesn't even touch the tire fire that is the British media scene. Uh, in in many ways, much worse than America. <laughs> yes, that was the, one of the one of the startling things. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like so, so that really adds, I think, a layer of fear for this movie for me. Like watching it today, I I was experiencing a lot of attention while I was watching these people like try and yeah. expose the ills of society through journalism through spreading a message that way and like sure today we have like podcasts and social media and youtube which which can do a lot of good in terms of getting the message out but like the reach of a youtube video pales in comparison to the reach of cnn or the new york times and also and also i think i think the idea that people just don't know mm -hmm. is is so limited now right it's there's there's this there's this I, well you know let's bring up our problematic fave uh, Zizek's point about ideological cynicism where he says like oh, we used to think that like ideology was like a false belief uh, where you know people could if you just told people the truth if you exposed like how things really are people would be like oh right yeah you're totally right we should have a revolution but now he's like people are very cynical in terms of their ideological commitments. It's like the the majority of people kind of get that capitalism doesn't really work, but we all behave as if it does. <laughs> we, you know, yeah. you know, we we're all just going along with it. And so, if you like, you expose some kind of big conspiracy now, people would go, "Yeah, we kind of knew that anyway," but I'm not sure what it really changes anymore. Yeah, and I think I think that's part of the problem of Chud, right? Or like part of the part of the thing that Chud wants us to address, because the thing that's happening in Chud is so ridiculous. You know, it's it's not just people being poisoned to death. It's literally turning humans into mutant cannibals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, it it does it does really beg the question that if Chud was happening today, would anyone care, or would this just be another damn thing? Would would this just be another another day on Twitter where it's like, can you believe that you know the that uh, Cuomo has been turning residents of New York City into mutant cannibals 
yeah. oh my god yeah. this is awful and then we'll all forget about it come dawn because the social media news cycle lasts seconds <laughs> yeah exactly so i'm sort of like uh, seeing all these characters who are so willing to go to the press and so like oh no they're going to expose us in in the new york times it's like uh, that wouldn't happen now nobody would care nobody nobody would care it wouldn't it or at least making at least getting people to care and at least moving that needle uh seems like it's become a lot harder than than in the time this movie wants to depict yeah um but it's at that point where captain bosch and uh reverend aj realize that you can't trust the system to police itself and that you have to kind of get involved in a in a in a, in a struggle against it Yes. Yeah, and I, I think like 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 to speak hopefully about this film for a second. I think that this this is one of the best parts of the movie for me is when you've got like uh, AJ who runs uh, some kind of shelter slash soup kitchen. Yep. You've got George who is putting together kind of like an uh, it's, it's like a documentary or like an artistic piece about the city's homeless. So something that it's definitely it seems like his project is definitely skirting the line between. Um, exploiting the homeless and then giving them a voice it's it's existing in an ambiguous space there yeah and then you've got captain bosch who was prior prior to these moments happy to go along with whatever the city government was telling him to do yeah right and then these these three people from three disparate backgrounds and then uh, later we'll we'll add lauren to that mix when she when she like <laughs> just swoops in to save the day after defeating a chud the, but um yeah the thing that the thing that uh, I mean, I like the fact that you have all of these people who kind of get involved in in, but the people who are most centrally affected, to be honest, in this film are a little bit wordless, right? They don't necessarily yes. get to do that much talking. Um, in like early on in the film, George ends up bailing um, a homeless woman out of prison um, mm-hmm. because she gets arrested for trying to take a police officer's gun, um, and, hmm. and so he. Uh, he he asks her why why are you trying to get a gun and i think she says is it val val yeah. val needs it uh val needs a gun val needs a gun so I, I said i would try and get him a gun and so he ends up going kind of like following her back down into the down into the sewers um and meeting val and like the part of the film that i was like really interested in was like val has like been horribly wounded and is desperately trying to find a weapon and he says like the, there are like these these there are these creeps these creeps down here in the sewers i was like i really really want there to be a prequel where it's just val who is like one of the first people to understand what's going on and is the first person to like get into this this struggle with the chuds uh, but we don't get any of that we what we get is these kind of outside no. like outside people who get drawn into the sewer and I get what you mean. I, I think it's that there is a kind of cool element to that, but there's also uh, like, isn't this like kind of speaking for the people who are actually the most immediately affected? Yeah. I, I, and I think, I think we've got like both of these things going on simultaneously. Right. Like I, I think that the, the, these two reads are kind of like uh, mutually inclusive of each other that you have these people who are like, because um, uh, the Reverend, his character, like he, his status as he's kind of in between worlds right because he is running the soup kitchen but he himself also kind of seems to be part of the homeless population in a way and i think that you're absolutely right though that this movie kind of uses the homeless of new york as props yeah it's not it's not the worst 
uh, movie I've ever seen in terms of like poor depictions of uh, people impacted by homelessness. Uh, but nevertheless, like they are the ones getting turned into chud monsters, which I think is uh, hashtag problematic, but also at the same time kind of true. Yeah. You know, like like as as you were saying earlier when you're reading that China Mavo quote, like the people this happens to are often the people who are already incredibly bad off. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not the house on the hills where they're dumping the radiation. It's down in the valley. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, since we are now officially on the topic of the homeless in this film, we should really kind of dig in and really try to explicate how the film treats them on kind of every every level since they are um, even though they're not the main character. And they, like, they're a monolith, right? Even though the individual homeless people of the film aren't main characters, they are nevertheless the central players through which the action of the movie progresses. Yeah. And it would be worth it to to kind of dig into this and see what is to be seen. Um, yeah. I mean, and there, there are bits about this which I actually think are quite promising. You know, you, you this is a film from the 80s, but, like, George, for example, is clearly very uh, affected by his time with the homeless he's he he like when he bails out this this woman he he's not kind of talking down to her he's like well what did you do that for that seems a little bit a little bit like so what's going on and he wants to kind of be involved you've got the reverend who runs a soup kitchen is very protective of the people in his community that he's trying to keep a keep a lookout for and I think it would be very easy to for this to have like a pretty nasty streak in its in its politics to be very kind of dismissive and and kind of belittling of homeless people. But um, I, I do think it's it edges towards that kind of like more liberal paternalism where they go, oh well, this is this is very this yeah. is very bad. We should do something for these poor people. Yes, yeah, I, I definitely I definitely want to say that this movie isn't uh, mean spirited. No. Uh, towards the homeless population it depicts, but it is definitely treating them as as wayward and in need of guidance. Yeah, uh, from from kind of you know from above, from above you know. Yeah. Um, but there yeah. isn't any real examination of the of the the kind of structural causes that have uh, led there to being hundreds, thousands of people living in the tunnels. Um, you know, the film opens with some stills uh, taken from uh, George's pictures. But that's about as kind of close as it gets, and there there is no kind of connection to the fact that uh, it's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that's dumping all of this toxic waste, um, and they clearly know that there are huge amounts of people in sewers. Uh, but at the same time, we don't make the yes. kind of we don't make the explicit connection of like, hmm, I wonder why. I wonder why <laughs> there might be. There might be hundreds, perhaps thousands of people trying to survive in the sewers of, of, of an incredibly wealthy capitalist city. The way that might be. <laughs> I just, uh, who can say? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so it's, it's one of nature's many mysteries. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that those are some of the like in, in terms of like a, a like a, uh, you know, critical theory interpretation of the film. That is definitely a powerful limitation is, is that by the text of this movie, these homeless people are just kind of there. Yeah shrug you know like there there isn't an acknowledgement that new york has like a massive housing crisis going on where there are so many empty buildings so many new builds and so many homeless people not to mention it feels like a prison popping up every weekend now yeah. designed to house this quote-unquote surplus population yeah. but i do want to say that in terms of the individual depictions of people in this film this movie is 
a, a little more nuanced. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, like, I completely like, agree. I completely agree. I, I think I think a lot of films um, tend to depict homeless people as like kind of profligate and lazy and drunken, and these are all just people who are very bad conditions that have been kind of marginalized by society's inability to help them. And I think that that does put this movie just a peg above some of the competition. No, no, I I, I realized I was being quite critical, but I actually I, I actually am really fond of this film. Um but I I to be borrow your catchphrase, absolutely, I completely agree. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and that's Oh uh, yeah, it's it's also it's also good that this movie doesn't um because there, there's one homeless man and I uh, don't remember his character's name, but he is definitely like uh, t- currently undergoing a mental health crisis, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and he li- he lives in the basement of the uh, uh, the soup kitchen. I was I was thinking and, about the exactly the same character. Yeah. And and what's what's kind of interesting is that like so we've talked a lot in, about um, we should do a whole episode on this, but we talked a lot about how horror movies are traditionally in horror in general and the gothic more broadly are really 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 bad when it comes to depicting mental illness. Yeah. Uh, this character, it's not nuanced. It's by no means a good depiction of of mental illness and how that interacts with things like homelessness. But it was refreshing to see him not be a psycho killer or the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, which I mean, low bar. But uh, Bosch goes over to talk to him, and you know, it's told to be respectful, to be polite. You know, be mm-hmm. careful around this person. This is someone who is not predisposed to trust you as a as a police officer. Um. So yeah, I really loved that sequence. By the way, yeah, like that scene was one of my favorite parts of the film. I, yeah, I, I, I actually would definitely agree with you. I think that was, I think that was again, you know, the bar is not high. The mm-hmm. bar is not high, but it is definitely, it is definitely not playing into the same kind of viciously demeaning tropes and stereotypes of both the homeless and people dealing with mental health problems um, that huge amounts of horror is very prone to yeah so yeah totally uh, i'm I'm totally for that um before we started recording i know i said i know i said that i didn't i didn't really sort of like get into the first sort of hour of this film because it's (laughs) it's very it's very talky it's lots of like white dudes in suits basically going i'm gonna go to the press no don't go to the press okay i won't go to the press um and then we get to the kind of final uh the final act we've talked we've talked about the and which is where we get the chud uprising which was just so, yeah. just so good and i loved it so much oh gotta love some chuds <laughs> um yeah definitely I, I think we had different takes on this film because i do believe before we started started talking i, I described this as uh like uh alien by way of critters uh oh, i hadn't thought about it but i love that reading <laughs> And like, like I, I love the slowness of of the start of this movie before we get to the Chud uprising part. I love, I love the kind of the mystery, the procedural, the kind of um, it, it feels like a detective drama, you know, leading up to Chuds. <laughs> and I guess, I guess we should talk. We should talk. You know, we've we've been talking for about fifty minutes now, and we have not talked about Chuds yet. Uh, well, it's it's about fifty minutes into the film that the Chuds first appear, so I think this is a good. I guess that's appropriate. <laughs> okay. And it's, it, it is in the final act. It's in act and the end of act two, the beginning of act three, where we, we have the great God uprising and uh, 
the Judds rise up and and emerge out of the sewers, ready to 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 wreak havoc upon uh, a New York and its system, which has sit, you know driven them out into the margins and underground to be uh, the victims of this environmental racism and classism, um, and they've returned now to kind of take everyone down with them. John, my dearest friend, can I can I introduce you to something that the the wonderful cosmic miasma that is my cursed mind came up with <laughs> just now as you were talking? Yes, please. So everyone, everyone at home, put on your Harmon hats. Because Chud-oriented ontology. <laughs> I think that's where this discourse needs to go. Yes, yes. Uh, lay it on me. Let's let's have some. So uh, obviously the Chuds are like alien. They're not aliens, but they're they're irradiated cannibal monsters, right? Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Yes. Yes, but we we need we need to focalize the Chud for a moment and 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 consider how the Chud experiences their own reality. <laughs> Before we can have a thorough discourse about the placement and the nature of the Chud within the text of the film, okay. right? Uh, the Chud, if you will, uh, isn't evil. The, the, the Chud, it's not like there were some demons summoned up from below or something that is, is synecdoche for the darkest impulses of humanity. Uh, the, the Chud are victims. The, the Chud are for the former homeless population of the city who have been exposed to these chemical agents that have been uh, illegally uh, deposited down in the sewers. And that has turned them into monsters. That has turned them into cannibals, right? The Chud, uh, from their own perspective, are just trying to eat. They're just trying to live deep down in the sewers. These are, these are humanoids, right? They are of and from us. Our, our response, it was our actions that created the Chud and our inaction as people who kind of allowed the state of homelessness to continue that created the Chud. So we cannot blame them for their uprising. We cannot even blame them for their cannibalism. For from the Chud's perspective, they're just another creature on this earth trying to survive when it in fact is the intersection, intersections of oppression and the uh, insufficient action of any kind of revolutionary class that has led to the uh, creation of the Chud. How's your brain doing with that one? <laughs> love it, love it. Let's let's take this a step further. Let's take let's take Harmon, come on our podcast. <laughs> let's take this a step further. Let's let's say you're right. The Chuds do it. The Chuds are not victims. The Chuds are not. And here's the thing: the Chuds are not only not doing anything wrong. The Chuds are doing exactly what they should be doing. They're doing something which is morally the chud right. Is your bud? The Chud is your bud. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds weird in a British accent, doesn't it? It, is, it, it doesn't does. sound right in any accent. Um, so, like, to, like this is to me. You know, I completely agree with you. This is a this is a beautiful image of revolutionary movement of of a human subjectivity which has been um, uh, changed traumatically by the, the the systemic evils of capitalism. And it returns, you know, it's the it's the abjected monster we try and cast out yes. the poor and the and the and the homeless, and we we literally throw it out with the toxic waste. And so their return is not only not doing anything wrong; it's doing everything right. It is a it is a revolutionary movement, a, a literally an uprising of the 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 most abjected in capitalist society, and we should be a hundred percent behind them. 
Yep. And, and this was this is I mean, like in the the film Chud was one of the movies that inspired Jordan Peele to do uh, us. Yeah. Yeah. And and during during us, you can even if you're an eagle eyed viewer, you can spot a VHS copy of Chud lying around in the background. Yeah, totally. And, you know, this is uh, I, 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 I remember in an episode with the vegan vanguard, I said that I did not think that us was a Marxist Leninist film. Uh, <laughs> I think you could make a much more revolutionary. But do you think Chud is? I, I, I think actually that you. <laughs> wow, I thought I was going to have the most like like a mind melting take of this episode. Given given that you have a uh, a kind of movement that is formed of like uh, religious officials of people who have defected away from a quasi-military operation like the police uh you have people who have been cast out from society and have literally uh risen up and and, and sought to uh, it's notable they attack the police officers first um for example um you know what i think you could make you could make maybe that there is kind of revolutionary movement in the chuds so are we now to describe ourselves as gothic Marxists with like Chudite thought? <laughs> but if we, but if you take what you say, if you take, if I take what you said seriously, that you know these are not, these are not uh, victims. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just trying to exist, and they're trying to exist within a system that seeks to do nothing but completely destroy them. The only just thing, the only sensible thing to do, is to it is it is never wrong for the oppressed to rebel. You know, if yes, so so yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's like this is this is like a fundamental problem and a fundamental question that exists in so many different horror texts, right? And I think like uh, obviously Frankenstein was the best exploration of this, at least the best that I can think of, where like monsters exist on their own right. Yeah, you know, they're they're not most of the time they're not like beings of pure evil like unless you're a marvel all the monsters in marvel movies are beings of pure evil and they're space bugs and cgi men are made of goo and like none of them matter have personalities because they just exist to destroy everything but in a lot of horror movies very few of the monsters exist in that way a lot of the monsters emerge naturally from the world and in and of that have rights to exist right this as chud is asking complicated questions about our relationship to things like vampires yeah about uh the xenomorphs from alien uh, you know about gremlins themselves and, and on a, gremlins themselves John. and on a more practical level about our relationship to the poor the dispossessed the marginalized the homeless you know the the idea that, that yeah. we do not need to take like a primary a primary catalyst for the creation of a monster is a refusal of an individual or a community to take responsibility for the consequences of their actions, right? Frankenstein creates life and mm -hmm. absolutely refuses to take any responsibility for it because he can't stand what it looks like. Um, and so just in the same yep. way, this is a uh, homelessness is a systemic issue created by the effective functioning of capitalism, which then refuses to take responsibility for its own failures in providing means of life for all people, which it's perfectly capable of doing. So, yeah, the the chuds are chuds are, in that way are created monsters. They're made monstrous, literally mm -hmm. made monstrous. Yes, uh, and not through a mistake, not through an error, but through capitalism functioning exactly as intended. Yeah, no, I, I I couldn't agree more. And to, and to tie this right back into Frankenstein, you know, we have we have kind of the famous line that that's in the novel, and that's 
Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? And that's kind of what the chuds are asking when they uprise. Except instead of, you know, doing what Frankenstein is wont to do, and that's quote poetry, the chuds are eating people in a diner, including a young John Goodman. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so in many ways, in many ways, it does share an awful lot of textual similarity with with uh, Frankenstein's uh, poeticism and the, the, the poeticism <laughs> of the creature. But yeah, Ch chuds are like poetry. Yeah, but here, rather than try and reason with yeah, their oppressors, they they fulfill the urges that they have been denied, which is the most basic means of life for all people: food. You know, they're they're they're, they're the homeless. If you're homeless, you're always going to be struggling. You're always going to be wondering when, where, where your next meal is. And so they emerge out of the sewers and they find themselves in basically a big snack bar filled with uh, delicious, meaty uh, humans in blue uniforms. And that is one way for a young John Goodman to go out being de being, <laughs> being devoured in the revolutionary violence of the Chud uprising. <laughs> I mean, if if one of my early career roles was to be just kind of eaten by a chud, I would be happy if that was my only role. <laughs> uh, you tell me there's a chud three and I will be there in a heartbeat. Um, but I think uh, so. So we're rolling on to the end of the episode now. And there was one final final bit of chud discourse I, I would like to wrap. Yeah, with, let's do it. Unless there's anything you would like to bring no, up. Let's do it. Let's do it. So uh, we have been kind to the Chud. We uh, might even be called Chud Reclaimers. <laughs> uh, chud in the modern parlance is kind of a slang term for Trump supporter. Uh, yes, that's true. And and it uh, exists kind of in an interesting kind of like state when you when you consider how we've been like defending Chud right through through the course of this text. And, and I think like part part of the interest there is in like why we've chosen this particular label for for Trump supporters instead of just like racists or proto-fash or literal Nazis in some cases. Yeah, why do you why do you think that was the term that was bandied about to describe I I have, I have no clue how that term got started. Um if it came from the movie that would be very interesting because that would be like literally the polar opposite read than what we have uh for the chud themselves. Yeah, I mean, if you think if you think that in some way Trump is a rupture or a break with American capitalism, then it would sort of make sense. You know, this, this kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not in any sense, a progressive, it's a reactionary movement, right? It's a re it would, they would be yeah. reactionary chuds, um, which they are. Um, but if you, <laughs> but if you, but if you realize that Trump is really the apotheosis of American uh, decaying mm. capitalism that has completely... Yeah, he's, he's the logical conclusion of capitalism functioning as intended. Yeah, the, the, you know, in an America which has completely dissolved the, the fragile membrane that separates entertainment and politics, then I don't know, Chud is maybe the wrong, is, is absolutely the wrong term because it doesn't fit. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially like in, in the in the context of the film, Trump is much more akin to these kind of like banal regulators who are trying to just kind of like squeeze uh, profit from a barrel of nuclear waste. Yeah, and they're dumping it. Than he is the people who've been impacted by that. As, and yeah, I mean, and so I'm I'm sort of curious to know where that term came from and how it emerged. 
uh, for some cursory research, it does look like the film or that term originated from the Chuds in the movie Chud. Huh. As a as as a general uh, uh, pejorative for uh, you know alt right losers. Uh, okay. Which I find I would I find to be interesting, right? Because the Chuds in the movie are n- in in no way even metaphorically connected to. Well, what what today would be like the rising extremists on the right? You know, like the the Chuds in Chud are are victims of this system and not perpetrators of the violence. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think I think we we should not we should not slander the noble uh, Chud <laughs> by comparing them to uh, you know petty bourgeois white racists. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Do not do not sully the name of uh, cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers by comparing them to the alt right. <laughs> That's just low. Come on. That's so much better than that. <laughs> right. They're just trying to find food. Yeah. They are the Robin Hood of of the movie Chud. One one version of the Chuds uh, eat and destroy cops. The other version have Blue Lives Matter profile pictures. Why are you comparing these two? <laughs> That that is interesting because the Chuds in Chud Two, Bud the Chud, are are like a military experiment designed to create super soldiers. Oh, we're definitely going to have to do a follow up ep- episode on that. So so maybe maybe there there is kind of a uh, massive distinction between uh, the Chuds in Chud and the Chuds in Chud Two, Bud the Chud, I, in terms of the political alignment of the Chud. Yeah, we are absolutely going to have to do another episode on this. So you, you you either I mean like this is how history goes you either wind up on the side of the chuds or the side of the buds. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely. Well, this episode has taken us places. <laughs> I'm I'm so happy with this episode. This episode has been great. Uh, is there anything more you want to bring up, or should we should we wrap things up there? I think we've I think we've got a good. Oh, I th- I think this is a good place to pump those. Brakes. There we go. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to another hopefully fantastic episode of Horror Vanguard. I know you've wanted all uh, you've wanted us to go through Chud for the longest time now, and we've finally done it. Uh, so thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you want to talk to us, uh, we have a Discord that you can get access to by signing up for our Patreon page. We are also both on Twitter, so you can uh, send us carrier pigeons full of messages anytime you want. And uh, yeah, stay spooky, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>